On today's episode, I'm joined by the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, including Dope Sick. She goes into stories from her brand new book, Raising Lazarus, which tackles the ongoing opioid epidemic by uncovering big pharma corruption while showcasing those who risk their careers and their lives to fight against this man-made drug disease that continues to plague America. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the Emmy-nominated, award-winning author, Beth Macy, and this is Uncovering the truth. Beth, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, let's just get right into it. I want to start with a quote that you wrote in the book, Raising Lazarus, and it just gives me the chills. And you write about the victims of OxyContin, quote, these are not moral failures or criminals, but these are people with treatable diseases. So do we stigmatize the victims of OxyContin, you know, because it's psychologically easier for us to blame them as opposed to swallowing the reality that there could be a company like Purdue Pharma that is so evil and it's right in front of our very eyes? Yeah, I mean, I think stigma is really at the basis of the fact that our main forms of dealing with opioid use disorder and the folks who have fallen to that are, are to incarcerate them or to just let them die to medically abandon them. And if you go back to what, what Richard Sackler said uh, in the early days of Oxycontin, he said, uh, we must hammer the abusers. They are the criminals. Mm. They are the culprits. It was, and it was easy for him to say that because he knew that America has long stigmatized drug users because of the war on drugs, which was really a, a war on black and brown people. Mm -hmm. It was designed to be racist. Yeah, I, I, I'm just, I was blown away at the, the sheer sadism because I, I thought it was, you know, it, it, this is certainly a problem of greed, but to me, even more, when I look into it, I'm like, this is more, these people, it's almost as if they like what their drug and the effects it has on the population. They see the death rise, they see the death toll and they ignore it. So I want, is there a, um, you know, is this all stemming from the companies, this stigma that we need to blame the abusers, or is this something that we as a society can uncondition ourselves from? And this was there before big pharma came in and planted this message. Yeah, I mean, I think it was there going back to really the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914 that made uh, heroin and cocaine illegal at a, at a time when, um, I forget the number, it's in the book, but a whole ton of Americans were legitimately being prescribed those drugs or they could, you, could, you could buy heroin over the counter back in the late 1800s, it was, you know, it was designed by another rent-seeking corporation to, to cure addiction to morphine. So, you know, just like OxyContin was supposed to uh, cure moderate pain, but not be addictive. Um, so like these kind of, this kind of swindling has been going on for many, many years, but it really picks up um, with the war on drugs, which is declared in the early 1970s, 
by Richard Nixon, who is trying to, you know, shore up his Southern strategy, which is, you know, mm. basically to make white voters vote for him because he is, you know, uh, really going after, he creates the system where black and brown people uh, are most likely to get incarcerated for drugs, even though they're not the largest majority of drug users. So before that though, and this is a story I think really bears repeating if we want to get out of this now is Mm -hmm. when the veterans started coming home from Vietnam addicted to heroin Nixon, again, hoping to short votes among veterans and supporters of veterans, started this on-demand system, clinic system for methadone clinics. There were 300 methadone clinics all around the country that people could go into for methadone and social supports and help with housing. And that's really the idea that we need to get back to. That was kind of pre the war on drugs, back when our funding stream was 30% incarceration, 70% uh, treatment. And then the war on drugs happens and gradually that formula exactly flips. And that's where we're at today. Most of our addiction dollars go toward incarceration. We've got to get that back in balance. Wow. So to me, it sounds, it sounds maybe at a, a national level, this is being neglected or simply brushed away by just throwing them in jail. And, and, you know, I know there are, there's the new crisis, the fentanyl crisis, and there's a major political party. They, they simply blame immigrants for all of it, for bringing the drugs in and we need to close the border. But that to me, again, is creating yet another stigma just against immigrants. It's not solving the drug problem in America. Um, so I want to, because you, you, you were a, a local reporter as well. And do you think that we've sort of neglected local communities and we're just so focused on national issues that we've we're not solving the problem we're just talking about it absolutely i think that and and it's a hard problem to tease apart but a lot of these issues came up at the same time you know my first book factory man is about the aftermath of globalization particularly in communities where all the jobs went away or most of the jobs went away because they got shipped overseas and those are the same communities that purdue ends up targeting with their message that this new super powerful drug is virtually non-addictive. And, and then you see a lot of pill mill doctors popping up. And so that people who have lost their jobs, but everybody's got to survive, right? A lot of them end up getting addicted. And not only are they, you know, treating their pain with this drug, but they're also selling it so they can pay their bills because they can't find jobs anymore. And people would say they should just move to areas where there are jobs. But, you know, historically, and this goes back millennia, people don't just move because uh, maybe people with college degrees do, but most Americans don't have college degrees. And people who don't have money to move or social capital to move or connections to move and they don't have family in other places, they're not going to move. And again, that's the that's the blame the abuser. That's the blaming the victim for the problem you caused. The government let these jobs go away and did very little for the people that were left behind, and and then failed to regulate things like oxycontin so that when this comes along, they can just 
I mean, it's like government impotency at every level. It sure sure seems like it. And I, I was blown away even just, I, I truly believe the FDA was, I mean, th- this is not, I'm not going to make a blanket statement, but I truly believe the FDA was a, uh, a th- thing you could trust before I, <laughs> before I read, got your work and yeah. understand that they accepted labels that were false and misleading. Yeah. As and as if you've just- seen the dope sick show on Hulu, like we really, we had a document that, um, you know, it was, a, it was a fraud department document that showed that Purdue had rented a hotel, a suite of hotel rooms right down the road from the FDA. Mm. And they actually, you know, wrote that label together with the guy who eventually stamped approve on this, this bogus label. Well, it wasn't bogus. It, it had some, it it looked like it had legitimacy to it, but, you know, there were a lot of things that were um, misstated the, especially the, the the risks were misstated and there was really no research done to prove the safety of the drug. And nonetheless, it gets approved. And lo and behold, 18 months later, the guy that approved it at the FDA goes to work for Purdue Pharma. So that's, that's what we call revolving door 101. And we've really got to yeah. put up some guardrails on that. I, we have to revolving door, especially around, you know, politics too. It's the congressman turned a lobbyist and you make a killing and you're doing the same job without having to vote. So, but I, I think what's interesting about that is again, they place all of the, let me just, the big pharma, they play or Purdue, they, they place the burden of proof essentially on the, we, the people, because there's no regulation. So it's almost as if we have to be such smart consumers in the 21st century. And it just, it truly makes me believe it's, I know that's why you write about the stone rollers in raising Lazarus without these sorts of local heroes spreading the word and even risking their, their lives and risking going to prison, helping these victims. It's like, it's, it's, it's still a battle against people versus the corporations in a certain sense. So yeah, I, mean, I would just love to it hear is. also. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a scene near the end of the book where I'm following this Ryan White HIV worker around and, you know, she's also a harm reductionist in her spare time, of which she has very little, <laughs> uh, you know, and she's trying to find these folks who told them they have HIV and they're getting kicked out of their homeless encampments right and left. So she can't even find them to tell them. And as she's as we're looking for a particular person one day, I just you know, in our daily, you and I are people of privilege and in our daily goings on, we might see homeless encampments and whatnot, but it's not in our habit to like, just look under the cover a teeny oh. bit, but that's what Brooke does. That's her job. And and to see that world opened up to me was so moving. I'll never forget it because like, we're just looking for one person and the need that's out there is so incredible that she can't even get to it. You know, I don't even know how they do this work. And 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 she's a person in recovery herself and vulnerable to relapse because it's so stressful. But we run across this man who's just dope sick in a wheelchair. His legs are so infected. He's going to die if he doesn't get on IV antibiotics. And he won't go to the hospital because he's been there the week before and they just stigmatized him and treated him like crap. He's not going back. And at the same time, She's like trying to treat his wounds with little tiny packets of antibiotic salve. Uh, the cops come and put up an eviction notice 
you know, but at a riverbank. Like, yeah, who wild, cares wild. that these people are living on a riverbank and like not don't care at all about the human beings in it? Well, I that's just it, it, it's funny. The, the homelessness issue is something because where I'm located in L.A., that has just been the number one politicized issue. And we've completely dehumanized them to the yeah. point of like, let's just get them out and throw them in prison so we can keep our community safe. But that is that, that that's not my belief. That's the. That is the consensus. And that, that's kind of the battle where, and it's like, there, but, but there are, I, there, I didn't realize there were even harm reductionists. I didn't even know that was a term. I just thought yeah. the only way you could solve this is through rehab or, and, and I'm, I'm clearly wrong. And there are yeah. these people. I just, uh, is that why yeah. the, the title raising Lazarus? I, I just love that. Oh, thanks. Do you, do you want me to just explain it? That, that would be great too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you would explain it much better than I would. Well, I don't know. It takes me a minute to get there, but if I'm not landing the plane, just like go Beth, just bring it in. <laughs> um, but no, a lot of people think the title is from Narcan, which is a wonderful drug. You know, it's, it's the, it's the overdose reversal antidote. Mm -hmm. And, um, and of course that is part of harm reduction because you can't get dead. You can't get in, and better if you're dead, right? So first we got to bring these folks back. But um, raise this, the reason I called it Raising Lazarus is because I was following these harm reductionists, uh, these two women who are married, they run North Carolina, they run the nation's only queer, biracial, faith-based harm reduction group. It's called Olive yeah. Branch in Hickory, North Carolina. And there's this moment where one of them, the Reverend Michelle Massas, has been called to this little town in North Carolina, which is actually the setting for the Andy Griffith show way before you were mm. born. Uh, but, you know, it's classic Americana, like, you know, celebrates the wholesomeness. And just barely under the surface, this town actually has the second worst overdose death rate in the nation at the time. And nobody wants to do anything about it. And so Michelle's called over. It's an hour and a half away to give them advice and it's this meeting of church volunteers and they and they're gonna like create a volunteer network of of people to drive people who live way out in the country and suffer from addiction this is also one of these towns that was full of pill mills at the height of oxycontin because uh, that's where these problems are the worst and, and well, they're gonna bring them into treatment so really i gotta just really quick that pill could you describe what a, a pill mill is Pill Mill was a, quote, pain clinic where, I mean, they're not all, they weren't all like this, but what usually gets deemed a pill mill was a pain clinic where folks could come and get written prescriptions without a lot of proof of their oh. um, injuries. And the doctors were making a ton of money on it. Uh a lot of them became paid spokesmen for Purdue. So this was one way that if you got sucked into being uh, addicted to pain pills, you could go, or even people who just wanted to deal pain pills could go and present with a lot of symptoms and they would write you these. And a lot of the, like a lot of the teenagers that I first profiled who were addicted here locally, where I live in Virginia would get their pills from uh uh, a, a person who went, who actually had a, an injury, but they prescribed so many of the damn things that then yeah. he would sell them to them. I mean, I know so many kids that got hooked mm -hmm. that way. And then once they crack down on the pill mills, the person's going to get dope sick if they don't actually uh, uh, 
have opioids, this flood of opioids in their system. So that's when the cartels started bringing in heroin, knowing that they were chemical cousins, because one sphere of dope sick is a really great, you know, business uh, proposition, like they're going to make money on it. So, but, but back to the Lazarus story, this meaning of church volunteers, uh, the meaning just went haywire. And one woman hijacked it entirely by saying, I think when they overdose, we should let them die and take their organs. And, you know, nothing happened. And it's this idea of nimbyism. I call them caves, which are citizens against virtually everything. And Michelle, the harm reductionist there, who's just there to try to help, tries to remind this group of, quote, Christian people that, you know, this is not what Jesus would do. And she tells the story of Lazarus to get them to check their own blind spots. She said, Jesus performed the miracle, but it was the disciples in the community that had to roll the stone away from the tomb and tell Lazarus to come out. And then they had to get close to him to take the burial cloths off of him. And she says, it's stinky work. You might get a little mess on you, but only by getting close to the issue are you going to experience a miracle of raising Lazarus. And so, you know, she tells that story and eventually you know, because of some really great people who, uh, you know, they start to work on their problem. And and so the book is really a guidebook of how to get past these political divide that keeps so many people from being able to access treatment. You know, we have a treatment gap of 87%. That means that only 13% of folks with opioid use disorder or OUD were able to get treatment in the last year. That's a That's a big old F. So that's what we've got to work on. Yeah. Telling them that's the the treatment. And so you actually, you brought up an interesting uh, topic there, which is I think religion and, you know, they were sneaking in cards that said they were worked at a ministry. So if their family or friends of the, the victims of the opioid saw it, they're like, Oh, Oh, it's, it's Christianity. It's, it's a church. It's okay. So, but I'm wondering though, is, is religion as well? Because there are, I think the country, there's still around 60% that believes in creationism. So the religion is, is a, a huge part of American culture and society is, do they believe not to put a blanket statement on them, but do they, are they against medication and, you know, these sorts of other treatments like the methadone, I believe that, that yeah. are used to wean off of it. Is this another barrier that we have to overcome and even religious people who fall victim to these drugs. Yeah. The idea is that like, let's get back to the basis of Christianity. Jesus wouldn't have just cast these people out. I mean, I'm not a religious person at all. I didn't grow up going to church, but like when I hear Michelle talk about why she does her work, I like, I am sold. I'm like, sign me up. Cause y'all have figured it out. And she's the only harm reductionist that I ever heard say, you got to meet the naysayers where they are too. The harm reduction always says, you got to meet the addicted folks where they are in the homeless encampment under the bridge. You've got it. Cause you, we, cause most of them aren't in any kind of system of care. You know, the, the folks camped out in front of a pottery barn in L.A., you know, they're 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 just being cast aside and the idea and they don't want to get better because they don't think they can and they haven't been able to get access treatment before. But this idea of meeting them where they are in use, giving them clean needles so they're not spreading disease around using a needle 100 times and sharing it. Right. That's how we've gotten this hepatitis C and HIV spike right now. Mm-hmm. And then once the trust begins to be established, 
the the harm reduction approach becomes a gateway to treatment. And we know that the medicines are way more effective than the abstinence-only faith-based rehabs. Now, that works for some people, especially if they're people who were brought up in church and 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 they believe that. And a lot of the faith-based rehabs, they really do help people with um, you know, some of them are free, they get them, they get their teeth fixed, they they help them with their charges, they take them to court, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I had to check my own bias about that because I was so like MAT, MAT, the, the medicines, medication assisted treatment. And then I'm like, no, wait, this works for some people. And if yeah, that's yeah. what you believe, then that's going to work with you. If you don't believe in the other stuff and you've had a bad experience, the idea is that everyone had, should have access to the full buffet of treatments. I think so too. And speaking about you know meeting people where they are, I think is, again, you have to undo the stigma first of, of recognizing that there is a human being underneath with a soul and they want to get better. And although sometimes it can be scary though, because we, uh, of again, the stigma that we have of homeless people, at least that's painted here, uh, you know, it's scary to even uh, talk to them or approach them or, but when it's a family friend or relative, we know that they are, that we know that there is someone in there who wants to heal and wants to get better and wants to cure this disease. So is there a, another, aside from approaching them, like as a, as just a normal person, is there something more that society you think needs to do to begin to overcome this crisis? Yeah. I mean, we've really got to begin to unwind the drug war mentality and we've all been brought up in it. You know, I was born in the sixties, but raised in it. Like this idea of people who do drugs are terrible. Um, and, you know, the only way to deal with that is to put them in jail, lock them up. But why is it why is it that the sacklers get to walk free? But, you know, your cousin that works at Subway, who was like using a user amount of, of dope and got caught is in jail for years. I mean, that's just yeah. the, it just shows you the unfairness of the you know billionaire justice and so we've got to begin to work on that treatment gap and offer folks who are in chaotic use uh access to evidence-based treatments and i mean it's just as simple as that but it's not like you can just go out and find them and pluck them you know you have we have to make that system of clinics that jerome jaffe designed in 1971 we can do that again we've done it before but it's going mm-hmm. inv- to it's going to involve like changes at every level it's going to involve changes in the way people are jailed and diverting people into treatment instead of immediately into jail it's going to involve treatment in jail most sheriffs elected sheriffs who, who are running on these tough on crime platforms yep. hug a thug they call it you know mm-hmm. offering them treatment we we've got to begin to change that because when people get out of jail and they're addicted and they're and their addiction hasn't been treated, they're then 29 times more likely to die when they reuse, overdose and die because they've been opioid naive. And if they go back and now fentanyl's on the streets, that's when people are, that's when people are more likely to die. So we've got to meet them at that moment when they get out. And so that's why I spend a whole chapter or two on this jail in Fairfax County, Virginia, that's really figured it out. And I'm telling you, a lot of these innovators, mm-hmm. uh, are women, you know, that's of run by course. a sheriff and, and they're just women who are getting shit done right and left. And, you know, so this, this particular sheriff, like 
Her jailers didn't want to do it. We're going to give them buprenorphine in the jail. Well, a lot of them are in jail because they were selling buprenorphine illicitly. And we can go into that if you want. But she, she's like, no, we they're they're just cycling in and out. We're not doing any. We're not rehabilitating them. So, and part of this is a harm reduction group that like meets the sheriff and says, we got to start doing this. Sheriff brings in counselors, locates them in the jail. Like that's really unusual. Mm -hmm. the, the office is in the jail. And then these peers who are people in recovery come and go to the jail to make relationships with these addicted folks in jail. And the deputies don't like that either. They're like, we're going to let felons just come in and out, out of our jail. And, you know, they brought consultants in to teach them the science behind why this medicine isn't the evil of all evils. And some still didn't get it. And they had to be let go. I mean, that's, we, we, we've got it. It takes courage because like those deputies could have all turned against her and she could have lost her next election. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she figured out she had the courage to make change based on the health of her community, not just getting reelected. Wow. And so it was that that's seeking reelection is something that should not be the priority, but just to, to speak to that, it's funny. You even just make me think again, like what is the purpose of jail? Is it to make our society safer and keep it uh, criminals off the streets or is it to solve their problems in there? And hopefully they come out if they come out and if they haven't committed a serious, serious crime, like a murder, but to heal them so that they can be reincorporated back into society. And I just wanted to, one more thing. So that was, that was interesting. You're, you're enlightening me on the spot again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought for, uh, this is just my being naive. I thought if you, if there was someone who was addicted to drugs and you just threw them in a sobriety tank, that they would go through the suffering and pain and they would become dope sick and it would be agonizing and, and cruel, but eventually they would be weaned off. And clearly if it's 29 times likely, I, I, so I'm, I, I'm completely wrong in believing that the sobriety tank solution is, is, is the yeah, equation. It doesn't work. I mean, occasionally you'll hear stories like, you know, that's what, that was my rock bottom jail. And I wasn't going to put my family through that again. It's just, you know, addiction, everyone experiences addiction differently, but the research is very clear that that is such a moment when folks are most vulnerable to relapse and death because, because our drug supply has gotten so much more, um, poisonous mm -hmm. so this idea of um you know there's some there's a there's a model out there called law law enforcement assisted diversion and that is this idea you know and they won't offer it to people that are out there seal, uh, selling huge amounts of heroin right they're offering it to to users who, who need treatment they'll divert them i've got a case i got a story about a woman i met her in a trap house i was with a needle exchange her wow. name's billy campbell and like, that's, that was a cool reporting moment because what reporter gets to just go in and out of a trap house. But I, you know, I was with this person that she trusted and she let me spend the day at her trap house. And she was actually giving out clean needles while she was selling heroin and people would disappear into the bathroom to use and come out and whatnot. And, you know, they all seemed miserable to be honest. And a few days later, Billy gets arrested bringing huge amount of heroin back from Winston-Salem. She gets arrested and the cops all know her because it's a small town. They've arrested her before. She spent most of her adult life in and out of prisons and jails. She's a very smart person. Um, mm -hmm. And 
one cop who's been made a relationship with a harm reductionist in town decides to do things differently. He says to her, Billy, what the hell are we going to do with you? She says, why don't you get me treatment? Then she'd never been offered treatment before. And so they called the, the brand new uh, post overdose response team that this County had the foresight to create. And here comes this peer, a person in recovery, who's a kind person and, and, and drives Billy to a treatment center uh, an hour away. And so I got to watch this woman go from running a trap house, being in jail, going to treatment. I mean, she's she's now been sober for 15 months. It's the longest time she's been sober since she was 12 years old. Oh. And she's like in her 40s. And, and she went to a faith-based harm reduction. I mean, a faith-based rehab. And it it helped her. And um, I mean, it helped her for a while. She eventually got kicked out for vaping. <laughs> oh, vape. um, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, by that point, she had connections with these peers. And one in particular just enveloped her. Uh, her a family member saw that she was really trying that this time seemed to be different. And, you know, I'm in touch with her all the time. She's doing great. Yeah. As a job. That's fantastic. And I just, because you as a, what's interesting about you as a, a journalist, because like, I, I think of your work as a journalism more than being an author, right. Or like a bestseller, but your, uh, your, you've clearly, because of the show, the Hulu show and the success of your book, Dope Sick has, it's propelled you to a, a sort of spotlight. And I just, I'm interested because you have to spend your time as a local community, you need to earn the trust of these communities to report on them and get close to them. And you're in trap houses and you visit prisons. And how do you, how do you combat sort of the, the undo the, the media attention to try to, you know, reincorporate back to these communities, <laughs> continue your work. Is, is that a, is that a challenge? As, as a well, journalist? I don't know because the Hulu show is kind of brand new. I was doing most of the reporting before the show came out. I was already a best-selling author, but these people don't tend to know that. No. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you that that jail that I profiled that wasn't doing things the right way that had twice as many people as they should have people were dope sick in the intake area. I mean, they only let me in because I was Beth Macy, an author that they oh, had wow. heard of, but they thought that that letting me in would buttress their argument for building a better jail. And <laughs> it, to me, it just built buttress the art, our argument for treatment and, and diverting people from jail. So, but again, like they haven't, read all the research that I had. So it's really an educational, I don't think these cops are all necessarily bad people. No. I mean, they legitimately thought if I saw how crowded they were, I would think the answer was a bigger jail. No, the answer is to put humanity back into our institutions. I mean, they're getting their bigger jail because it was already yep. underway. Right. <laughs> but, um, but being like, having your name as an executive producer on a Peabody winning show and being nominated for Emmys, that doesn't make what I do easier. It, no. <laughs> I mean, it might get me a call with the drugs are, you know, but it's not going to like help me out in the communities, which is what I most care about. And um, I met somebody at a needle exchange um, in Roanoke which took years to get to open because of all the nimbyism around it. And when I got there, 
because Roanoke had never had one. And then I see it and it's like, oh my God, this would have helped so many of the people that I saw just, you know, be abandoned and die. Cause it would have, it would have given them a place to go. It would have given them connections to services. It would have helped them not get hepatitis. And it was just this very moving moment. And it was all kinds of people, older po- folks wearing Trump hats and middle-aged people wearing Grateful Dead t-shirts and young 20-somethings with their dogs and they could get food, they could get clean needles, they could get connected to Medicaid, help with jobs. I mean, it was like, this is urgent care for the addicted. And it eventually got shut down because one of the neighbors was pissed off because of the needle litter. It was basically, he didn't like homeless people hanging out outside of his floral shop. You know, and there was a way to deal with that. But anyways, they're still going. They're just mobile now. No, but one woman, one homeless woman goes, you're Beth Macy. And I was like, yeah, she goes, I read your book, Dope Sick. And then she proceeds to tell me how, like, when she fell asleep in her homeless encampment, someone stole the book from her. Oh, my God. What a so many layers deep. of I know so many layers reading that book while that's that's fascinating but also disturbing they're smart people they're they're smart smart people i mean nobody's more clever than a person that has to get up and find a way not to be dope sick every single day and if we could harness that energy by helping them get into care i mean this is this is that's build back better you know Right. How we, you know, we can get all this money for jobs, but like in places like Mount Airy, which I write about, like they can't get anybody to pass a drug test. So they have all these jobs they can't fill until they start dealing with the demand for the drug, which is offering people care and treatment and meeting them where they are until they're ready to go to treatment and helping them make improvements, incremental improvements in their lives. We're not going to have a workforce for all these supposedly jobs that we're going to build back better. And I think what one thing you're, you're, you you said about there is education that the police, the officers, the the guards, there. It's not that they're so evil or that they want to just throw people in jail. Now maybe some of them are, but but yeah. but a lot of them they are truly there's a there's a disinformation going around and just a lack of knowledge about what these drugs do, how they change your brain chemistry, how they turn yeah. you into a dope sick where you feel like you're dying unless you get your next hit. Uh, and, I, and as well as it's going on in politics too, there's just so much disinformation, but it's being propagated by the corporations, by the, the politicians. So where we are right now is uh, a lack of knowledge and information and I think it's one of the, the reasons I like, you know, bringing on journalists like you to, to tell the truth. And because once again, I see this, this, this has been an, the opioid epidemic is, you know, what they call it. The opioid crisis has been going on, but they don't, but the mainstream media does not cover it. Like, and just uh-huh. a quick, quick example here with coronavirus, which was another awful pandemic, they had a death toll running on on the screen which i thought i'm like that's very powerful that is very powerful to see the number ticking up by the thousands but why don't we have that for the opioid epidemic which has claimed over a million lives and mm-hmm. and still today no, and they wouldn't they weren't even counting it i mean i was the first person to report that it was a million the media would just report the latest thing that had been reported and recycle it but i actually went back to the actual data 
when when oxycontin started in 1996 if you brought it all the way up to date it was well over a million for years they reported it was 500,000 i mean i know that's a little point but just like the the the, the accuracy there's there's fatigue with the issue um and yet we have a third of american families and i think that's a low ball number uh have been affected by this i mean we all know somebody i'm sure you know somebody yeah and we all know somebody and and if you think you're insulated from it because you have social capital and you have some manner of wealth, you're not. It's it, it this disease like spares no one, or no. or you're just one accident away from being overprescribed. And I don't know. I could right. go on forever. No, yeah, I like you should. <laughs> I like, but uh, when I was, I was actually uh, quick. I was brought into not even surgery. I think I my lips were extremely chapped, sunburned. I'd came up from vacation. I forgot, and it was it was awful. I could barely like move. And I went in, and sorry to gross the listeners out with that, but but uh, anyways, the doctor, without asking, he said, "All right, I wrote you a prescription for OxyContin," and I think I was for chapped lips. Yep. I was about 18 years old. Yep. Cause I was in excruciating pain. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not working. You can't touch it. It's going to hurt my. So then the guy barely resistance offered me Oxycontin, but this is before I knew I'm like, yeah. but I knew, I knew it was an opioid and I had a stigma against those. I'm like, isn't that like a heroin, uh, my gateway drug to heroin. So I, I said, thank you. I didn't take any of it. Cause I just, I was against it yeah. before, but I was like, Oh, and when I saw dope sick in the book, I'm like, my goodness. Could yeah. I have been addicted? Like, and I think of myself as a strong-willed guy, but it does it. Is it does it get you? Does it get anybody who takes it? And it's, I, I'm just, yeah. I'm blown away at the addictive, the addiction potency that this pill has. And yeah. is it still a problem today? Or I know Purdue filed for bankruptcy. The, the Sacklers faced zero consequences, but is OxyContin still plaguing the country? And we've just moved on. Uh, well, on the CDC issued guideline, and that's been controversial because there's a lot of chronic pain patients who think that doctors have gone too far the other way. And it's not cool to like just yank somebody off right. the, the amount of meds they've been using carefully and not misusing either because that send a lot of them to the black market because they have a dependency slash perhaps an addiction too. You know, what we need to do is we, our doctors need to be better educated. Um, the average number of hours that a physician gets in med school on addiction and pain is, is one to four, I've been told. Mm -hmm. Now, I just, I have some friends who just graduated from Harvard Med, finished their residency at Brigham Women's Hospital. I just had dinner with them last week and they had just taken their boards. It's a nine hour test. And these are young people who are going to save the world. They're just so freaking awesome. <laughs> and they said, guess how many questions on the nine hour test dealt with addiction? One question. And the question wasn't what? even right. Like the, they knew <laughs> what the answer was supposed to be, but it was a poorly written question. Like, like we've got to change the way we we've got a demand because a lot of our taxpayer money goes to graduate medical education programs that's still turning out young doctors that can't identify and accurately treat uh, addiction. I mean, I mean, there's so many things we need to do, and I sort of outline them all. I try to keep it in the new book. I try to keep it a nonfiction narrative that will keep one interested. You know, oh, it's yeah. not all just grim stories. It's really people who are inspiring, who are figuring out 
workarounds and end runs around these uh, really bad laws and rules and regulations. Um, and, and they're just, they frankly so inspiring that this book was easier to do than Dope Sick, which was just left me feeling so bereft. Right. How did, did yeah, I'm just, did this, how did you like, you wanted to, to tackle this again? And I know, yes, you, you feel feeling so empty after as, as anybody, as any human being would, but this, yeah. uh, I think, so you're coming to this one with hope, which is on the, the cover as well. And do you, do you see, where do you see the, the oxy epidemic right now? Do you have hope that we can overcome this with people like harm reductionists and the stone mm. rollers and the brave doctors who yeah. are sacrificing everything to and the share brave sheriffs you know too sheriffs. I, I am hopeful because yeah. there are there are people out here who who have decided that what we've been doing since the war on drugs began isn't working it's just not working mm-hmm. you know so there are people probably in every community there's someone who has actually educated themselves about this and knows the best way to do it but we've got to just start supporting them we've got to offer the government needs to incentivize you know, sheriffs that are reluctant and um, hospital administrators that don't want to treat addiction in their EDs when that's when that's where people are showing up with abscesses and overdoses. And so most hospitals don't offer addiction treatment from the ED or a portal into care. We've got to change that. There's Mm -hmm. just a million things we can do. And by telling the stories of these courageous people, I keep coming back to the word courage, who've just decided what they were doing before isn't working. Why don't we do the research and then do it and try something new? And when it, I, I learned this from a rural judge in Tennessee, an elected official, right? So yep. he's got he's to worry about re-election if he wants to keep his job. <laughs> he totally transformed the way he deals with people who are addicted in his court. It, it, and he's in 10 counties in rural Tennessee, which is one of the epicenters of uh, overdose deaths. He has reduced deaths wow. by 50%. Single he person. has reduced... NAS, neonatal abstinence syndrome, babies born dependent. He's reduced that. I can't remember the number, but it's it's significant. It's at least by half. And um, and when you sit in his recovery court, like you have never seen a judge be so thoughtful and so kind with these folks. He knows every one of them. They come once a week. There's a team meeting. And the doctor gets to make the decision about what kind of, whether they're going to go down MAT or not, not the judge. He cedes the authority to the physician on his team. And at the end, he tells them if they've had a good week, he says, I'm really proud of you. And he walks out from behind uh, his bench and he gives them a hug and they know he cares. Mm -hmm. It takes about five extra minutes for him to treat them like, a human being with a treatable medical condition. And his results are fantastic. The US Supreme Court gave him an innovation award a couple of years ago. So we know how to do this. We're just not doing it at a scale to match the scale of the crisis. That's inspiring. And it starts at the local level and they should get more attention, these sorts of heroes. And I just really quick, you actually mentioned something in there that I well, I think we'd be curious to hear. I didn't hear of that term babies born dependent is that what i think it means is that yeah is that as bad as it sounds yeah it's neonatal abstinence syndrome and it's when a mother uh has used uh opioids throughout her pregnancy the baby is going to be born dependent oh my and 
uh, which, you know, there's a lot of judgment around that, but in a lot of these mothers, they had, they had no help while they were pregnant and, um, and babies aren't born addicted because addicted means like you are, uh, your behavior has changed based on your dependency and you are doing things that are not favorable to you. Babies don't have that kind of will. So babies are born dependent. Uh, They didn't choose to be in this situation. And what happened with that particular judge, his name's Dwayne Sloan. He adopted an NAS baby and he got to know the birth mother and he saw that, and he was a former prosecutor that was totally against MAT or buprenorphine, Suboxone. And he got to see her that literally she's willing to give up her child because she, the only thing she can think about when she wakes up is not being dope sick. It's, it's, he sees it. And then he's like, what we're doing isn't working. And then he admits he was doing it wrong. And that's another key piece, I think, to making change. You got to have folks like Judge Sloan or a profile in ED doc in Roanoke here who decides he's been doing it wrong. He admits it. And then he does things differently. And those people have so much power. Like yeah. they're these little bailiwicks, you know, mm-hmm. and um, we just need them to use their power for good, to be honest. <laughs> it's true. Well, it can't be swayed by the corporations. Well, luckily, the Purdue Pharma cannot sway them anymore because they're filed for bankruptcy. But and they're but the people are immune. I hated. I'm sorry. I hated that they were granted immunity from, from future suits and they're well, able to. It's it's an appeal, so it's an appeal. Oh, it's in so, so that's currently, quickly, but because no. it's a super wonky story. As John Oliver said about it, he goes, "When people want to do evil, you wrap it in something really boring, so nobody can understand yes, it." I love that. That's quote. great. That's perfect. Um, exactly. But they, you know, facing three thousand plus lawsuits from cities and counties and tribes, Purdue files for bankruptcy, and they don't file in Connecticut where they're from. They file in White Plains, New York, because there's only one judge on bankruptcy there, and he is known to favor what's called a third-party non-consensual release, which would basically give the Sackler family owners, who are not bankrupt at all, protection uh, or civil immunity against these cases in exchange for, okay, they're going to give up the company, and it started at three billion settlement. It's now up to six, but um, it was appealed. And the first judge looking at it, Judge Colleen McMahon said, no way did the Sacklers get the right uh, to, to not be sued. No way does somebody who lost their kid to Oxycontin not have the right to sue the Sacklers because of some bankruptcy judge. I mean, she just called it like it was. Right. It's such an insular kind of bankruptcy boys court. So in the book, I decided to tell the story through these activists that are really trying to get the victims' voices heard. And one pro bono lawyer who's facing off against these mm-hmm. Purdue lawyers that are making $1,790 an hour. An hour and, yeah. you know, they're, <laughs> just, they're just making bank on this case. And... And, it, and as Patrick Ryden Keefe has said, you know, he wrote the great book about the Sacklers called Empire of Pain. He's like, it's, it's like the emperor's new clothes. Nobody wants to call out what's actually happening. And, and so where I landed on this book, which, you know, I had to finish some months before it came <laughs> out and I didn't know what was going to happen, whether the, whether the lawsuit would be settled or not, the bankruptcy. And of course, it's not still everything takes longer than you think. 
is is like just the overarching idea of that what given that this is the way our system works what's to keep another millionaire that wants to be a billionaire from launching another uh life-threatening drug getting approval from the fda because they know somebody on the inside and um creating another epidemic and then skirting away by paying a fine and and you know they're leaving with okay let's say they're paying six billion dollars we know they made 13 billion and we know a lot of that is with third generation relatives socked away in trusts and offshore accounts. We don't even know, like the prosecutors don't even know how to get at that money. Yeah. They're so smart. <laughs> they're like, one person said, they're playing chess while the rest of us are playing checkers. Yeah. Um, but I, I, what, where's the where's the idea that I'm not going to do this because I'll get in trouble? No, I'm going to still get to go away with my wealth. You know, where there what, needs to be... Um, you know consequences there needs to be prosecutions not just fines and indictments right and of course the doj blocked the indictment. so i just i guess that this comes back to because you you said uh you you have this quote that also like i said before you're you just gives me the the, the shakes i'm like man this is this is serious and you say the real crisis was not the overdose crisis but it was underlying it and the crisis that underlies every other crisis, which is greed. And so is that where it's still, it's a battle against greed and it's incumbent upon the stone rollers to rise up and fight this and, and, and try to at least, you know, get on a national level to. Yeah. I mean, we need bankruptcy reform. We need to stop the revolving door. Elizabeth Warren has actually talked a lot about, like mm-hmm. she, she knows what's going on um and she's a tough and, too i like her. yeah she's tough and she's a bankruptcy expert <laughs> katie porter literally wrote the book on bankruptcy uh, you know and we need more people like that to be mm-hmm. um in congress and to be we need better elected officials but first we've got to change we've got to educate the public on if we really want to turn back our soaring deaths of despair we've really got to become educated about what's causing them and so that's why i wrote this book i didn't want to write another book on the opioid crisis because it was so bereft at the end of the first one and then but i'm like then i started learning about these people who really were like doing innovative things to put mm-hmm. humanity back in our institutions. And I thought, oh, I've got to just celebrate these people so that when this money does begin to come down, you know, there's already some money coming down from the distributor case that the money won't just go into the same old, same old abstinence only drug war programming. Right. And I'm just curious, like, I don't want to hold you too long, but I wish I could talk to you for the whole day about this. But I want to ask you just real quick about the, because where we are now currently, the fentanyl is the, I believe, the number one killer uh-huh. in the country. And yeah. I'm curious because, like you said, you know, who, what's to prevent somebody from rising up and doing this again? And the answer is uh, nothing. If there are no prosecutions, nothing. So because they're going to make a lot of money from getting people addicted. Like yeah, what's have. the deterrent? That was a word I couldn't think of before. The deterrent. The deterrent. (laughs) That's better. Yeah, that's. (laughs) Um, Yeah. What is the deterrent? And so, but with fentanyl, 
at least if I'm not must, I'm no expert on this, but it seems to me fentanyl is because I, I actually know someone who accidentally, well, you know, they, a friend of a friend of a friend, they snorted a line of cocaine and yeah. they passed away because the yes. cocaine had fentanyl yes. in it. So is fentanyl being, first of all, is it being snuck in to other yeah. drugs? And secondly, why is it being snuck in? And then I guess thirdly, sorry, third, you can answer whatever, but is this being prescribed from above once again? And is this another drug that's, or is this more of a I mean, street drug? It's a street drug. It's a street drug. Fentanyl was developed. Like I had a outpatient surgery a couple of years ago. And when I woke up in the, uh, the recovery room, I heard him talking about giving me fentanyl. I mean, it is a legitimate yeah. drug that was prescribed. It's a very, very strong opioid prescribed uh, for post-surgery and severe end of life, things like that, appropriate to those conditions. But um, no, the fentanyl is coming in at the border and um, it's the ingredients are being shipped to Mexican labs from China. So, I mean, there is interdiction right, work right. that needs to be done in this. It's so tiny though, and so potent that it's really easy to sneak, sneak in. I mean, in the soles of someone's shoes, in the wheel well. I mean, yeah. it, it, we do need better interdiction, but that's not the sole answer to this. The Republicans would have you think that that's, we got to stop the immigrants coming in at the border. Yeah, I mean, because we still have seven million people in America who wake up every morning going, how am I not going to be sick? How am I not going to be dope sick today? So we've got to deal with them. And that's a demand issue, not a supply issue until we make the uh. treatments easier to access than the dope this crisis is going to continue to skyrocket. Wow. That, that's it in a sentence. Treatment that, easier to get than the dope. So both things are important. But right now, you know, the Republicans would have you believe that the only answer is to lock up the people who are using. Up, build the wall. And then, and then lock up the folks bringing the, the, it in. But until like the demand is lessened, they're going to still figure out ways to sneak it in. Right. And, I'll just and a lot of it, come, they, I hear a lot of it comes in in the mail, the, the ingredients, you could mail order the shit from China. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, and I, I, I don't get too in the, the policy weeds of that because I feel like I have enough work to do just with like yeah. treatments, but um, from what I've read and you, Sam Canoni says a new book called the least of us. That's got a lot about fentanyl in it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I just, because president Biden, he, he got Mexico to invest $1.5 billion into smart technology to secure the border. And they have seized pounds of pounds of fentanyl at the border. But like mm -hmm. you said, I, and this is, I don't think you could blame this on any really politics. The problem is here now. And so how are we going to solve it? And like, it and it's through work, like your work, which I'd call education and information and entertainment at the same time yeah and so, empathy you know and, that and, humanity and, and that, back into our institutions and not just drug war mentality right we need to treat them like people with treatable diseases like you said because they are and we all have our own addictions and, and our vices and these ones are very hard to wean off without a helping hand so beth i just want to say again also i know you 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 say the reason you became an author is because 
you wanted to just change one mind, if that's all you could do, just change one mind out there. You've changed my mind, my family's mind. We are, it's just the way I view this whole epidemic through a human lens versus a, oh, these people, I don't, I can't relate to them. And no, 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 I can relate. We can all relate to these. They are us. They're victims. They're not, they're victims and they're being targeted. They are not addicts. I don't even like using that word anymore. No, you know, you're, you're right to call yourself out on that. Um, Thank you. What a great, this is probably the best conversation I've had since the book came out. This Oh, oh, Beth, I'm so honored to speak with you and I can't wait to, well, hopefully you don't have to write another book about this, but you know what? You, you are the voice, (laughs) but you need to go, you need to go to Hawaii, go to Hawaii. (laughs) <laughs> my husband says like can you do a cookbook next <laughs> <laughs> yes do a cookbook before you write about fentanyl <laughs> uh, oh beth thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate uh, it it was my pleasure yeah. all right take care if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to follow and subscribe to the show help spread the word about uncovering the truth by giving us a five-star review and sharing the show with a friend. We're available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening. And as always, I will continue to uncover the truth. The Uncovering the Truth theme song was created and produced by Pokari.